0: Hello, it's Thursday, September 3rd, 2015, and that means it's time for Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today we have with us Michael Long. He's Assistant Professor of Otolaryngology and the Legendary Department of Neuroscience and Physiology at the New York University School of Medicine. Great to be here. Thank you, Michael. It's great to have you. His work has been on how... Neuronal circuit structure influences patterns of activity in neuronal circuits, and uh, lately on the neuronal circuits in Songbird, that patterns song. And also in humans, that pattern human speech. Uh, around the room today, we have Todd Troyer. Hello. Fidel Santa Maria. Hello. And me, I'm your host, standing in for Salma Karashi while she is on sabbatical, Charlie Wilson. So, Michael, uh, we usually imagine the tasks that the brain has to perform in a movement is in a series of stages. One of them is sort of planning and preparation for the movement and specification of the exact properties of the movement. The next one is translating that into a sequence of muscle contractions that have to actually perform the movement and then executing that sequence and then checking it to make sure that it's right and making adjustments in as we go along and then sometimes people add as they probably should uh, using any errors to correct the other processes uh, translation especially translation from planning into muscle specification so it seems to me that in some of your work in songbird you're saying that maybe those tasks are actually performed at different levels in the motor system and you can see them happening and, and actually say something about the circuits that create those. Is that right?
1: That that is right. So we look in in the songbird and we think it's a great place uh, for motor learning because it's the bird isn't just born with his song. He actually has to really spend a lot of time and effort throughout the first four months of his life um, practicing tirelessly his song. And uh, to the extent that the song is made up of these individual syllables usually four or five per Motif, and he has to practice about a million of these syllables in order to get his song right. So it's something that is quite difficult for him, but when he does this, it's important. And, and indeed, the, the female can hear minute differences in the song that we can't perceive, and she has a strong preference for that bird uh, doing his job properly. So there's a lot of brain architecture there, and it, it's, it's a kind of single, very rich behavior that has circuitry affiliated with that behavior, that's driving that behavior, and we can now see exactly what you've mentioned. How is this behavior, let's start to deconstruct it and say, what are the various stages of this? And how does this actually get assigned to specific processing centers within the bird's brain? And uh, there, there is, uh, and this is something that drove us to work in, in the human brain as well, and we can talk about that if, if you like, but um, there's a specific forebrain region in, in the bird, it's called HVC. It stands for HVC. It's a kind of unfortunate name. Um, I like to call it high vocal cortex. Maybe I'll do that here on the podcast for uh, the for, for, for uh, first time. What minute. is that
0: called <laughs> when you, when you re, a neo? Uh, or oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like
1: uh, yeah. So here's one of those. Uh, we'll I, call it. Well, why don't you like that, Todd? The
2: what? Because the the high, the high part is a. Uh, is a uh, oh it's a slur on the lower part yeah it's a slur on the lower part so assuming cool. that it's the high part it's actually reasonable evidence I don't care that much when you give it name, there's a problem given you, you want to give play you want to give things names you want to be sure that the names are appropriate because it changes the way you think about it totally.
0: actually I think that it's a wonderful name I also think area X is a fabulous <laughs> name <Yeah. laughs>
2: so I'm so do, do you think great
3: studies of of um, their function are suffering from like phrenology.
2: Uh, no, this is really the only one. The rest of them are all, you know, nucleus robustus. Yeah, yeah, like that's that. right. And, and nucleus interficialis, that's actually pretty that reasonable. Make sense. That was pretty hardcore. but one well, of the things with HVC, the high, there's a big debate in the field of how much it's a hierarchical top-down thing, and then that H that HVC is the high one. But if you think of it as a big loop, uh, like a recursive loop that goes through the brainstem and it's part of a circle, then there is no high. So that, part of the circle. Is that's a fire chain, or is it? Um, that's, that's that's maybe okay, there.
3: That that, but, so, so yeah. but the way I
0: was kind of laying it out, it is a little bit hierarchical, but it is a loop. So some place really is responsible for <coughs> specifying the movement, Not, maybe necessarily in terms of muscle, but in terms of kinematics or something like that. So we often think that there's some kind of. I,
1: I think that I do want to directly address Ray. that. Um, so there was a, a very uh, kind of high-profile paper, one that that Todd actually wrote the the news and views for for Nature. It came out in 2013. And, uh, and this was a paper that the Nature editors got together at the end of 2013 and they decided that this was the, uh, one of their top ten favorite papers. So this was a really big deal and the editors, they were very excited about this. And, and what they did was exactly what you talked about, you see kinematics. So they looked in this area, HVC, um, and they said, okay, not all parts of a bird song are, are created equal. Different parts of the song uh, could be affiliated with what they called vocal gestures. So changes in pressure and tension during singing, um, this is something that the bird effortfully kind of has to do versus just sustaining a note if you like. And so what they found is if they isolated, they first made a model of the syrinx and they found these gestural points and, and they looked at the, the songs and they picked out specific gestural points and they said, when we record from this motor area in the bird, um, it seems that cells are 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 kind of clustering along these gestural points. And if you look very carefully in the singing bird, and you look at all the actual motor cells that are doing the behavior, they have six neurons, uh, actually five neurons and six total burst events. And so that's that's not a whole lot of cells. And in fact, even in in Todd's uh, write up, he said, eh, you know, the jury may be a little bit still out here. We don't really know how well this, this is. So we've done some work now to try and expand this data set um, uh, using imaging and we've, we've now looked at uh, 627 uh, events and we've uh, gone directly to the source, Gabo Minlin has, has picked out these specific vocal gestures and we asked is there any relationship uh, between the, those events and these vocal gestures and the answer was there is not or at least there wasn't a strong relationship there that we could detect using our algorithm. So it s- suggests to me that um, this is actually not showing kinematics because those those gestural points were exactly that kinematics and so this seems to be a more divorced kind of more abstract code and if you go into the monkey literature you can see the same kind of thing so Tangi's work you have cells that are specifically active for this kind of sequence versus that kind of sequence other areas that could form uh, for example, time representations, and there seems to be hints of it in the monkey work that at least uh, these more promoter regions could have a more abstract code. Then, of course, somewhere along this pathway, you have to bring kinematics into it. The animal is moving levers; it's 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 flexing its muscles to make uh, this sound, and uh, we just think that's happening south of of uh, this a cortical structure, we think it's probably going on uh, between the RA synapse, which is one level down from that, and then the motor neurons, which is one uh, level down from that. So
0: I'm interested in something that's higher order than my plan for moving. So if I'm going to reach out and grab something, but I, just my own intuition, which is not reliable when it comes to brain science, as I admit, that, but my own intuition is that the first thing I do is I have a goal. And then the second one is I sort of plan the trajectory of my hand. And so I would hope, uh, if that intuition was of any value at all, that there would be neurons somewhere that are planning the trajectory of the hand that are second only to the neurons so, that are planning the goal.
1: Right. So, so in, in a sense, um, you know, what makes a bird sing? Like at a certain point, there's a motivational factor to this. Um, I think this very likely is neuromodulatory. So uh, if, if I show a bird a female and it's the first time he's seen that female, he'll it'll trigger a song. Um, if I keep that same female there for several minutes, you know, the, the thrill is gone and, and he stops singing to that female, I can then introduce a new female and immediately he becomes interested in what's or I could Right, this kind of thing. Right. And so or, or two females or whatever. And so the idea is it's clearly a sense of of kind of novelty or salience, which I think totally hits all the themes of neuromodulation. And so how neuromodulation works and how that um, how, how that plays into motor patterning is, is something that I'm very excited about here with this system. But, but I think in terms of planning, one thing that the bird does that I think is, is starting to be examined more um, and I think is, is exciting is As he's singing, right before he starts, he kind of clears his throat. There's something called an introductory note. And birds can have different numbers of introductory notes. But if you record from different song areas, they're all firing during these introductory notes. It's as if everyone's trying to get on the same page. So it's a way of of making sure the engine is well-tuned before it starts to really uh, generate the behavior. So I think that process of of getting all the different players so if it is a hierarchy, there there is, you know, a top level. Um and, and I think feedback is important. This is this is something I'd love to get into. But um there is a, a top level but then all you know if there's a king there has to also be a kingdom and everybody has to get on the same page and i think the introductory note is a is a time when all of these different areas can start to get in sync and once they're ready to go the song so it's out. possible
0: that the bird song doesn't need a lot of planning because it's basically
1: it's an overtrained behavior
0: o- Overtrained. so so maybe uh, all that the bird's highest level has to do is say execution now we sing. yeah
1: now we do it but so
2: one of the things so the the, the species that we're talking about right, is the zebra finch, but they sing a, c- a sequence of motifs, or stereotype motifs. So one way to potentially get out, so you can think of each motif, which is uh, often is reduced to song because that's the thing that's stereotyped. Uh, that could be just a ballistic gesture, an overlearned thing. So you just have to plan to start your motifs. Yeah. Uh, an interesting question so like the, before the motif start this is all this introductory notes that could be the planning process whether you think that there's any particular area it's a synchrony multiple distributed planning process or whatever uh one place that you may be able to get at what that might be is in between motifs so do you have to restart the next, the second motif, you have to say, okay, I'm going to do it again, and I'm going to do it again, or does it just kind of run in a, in, a, in a loop? And it's definitely, while the sequencing is really stereotyped, definitely some birds have these variable, they put in, some people call them glue notes, there's an extra call-like or intro-like note that some they sometimes put in between motifs. And this may be a way to get at, because uh, you have uh, a a small degree of variability, or a controllable degree of variability, but enough rep- repetitions that you could get at what happens about the restarting of the motif, for example. What's the difference between a motif when it does have a glue note and when it doesn't have a glue note? Is it more together stereotyped, or is there something that happens? The intro notes are pretty variable, and it's a long pattern. There's a lot of things that are wrapping up. In, inside the song, whether it really initiates, I think that's a, that would be place to go after.
0: If you, if
3: you have, Um, a trigger, right, that then plays, then then just it's a command that then opens the file and plays the entire song. Why, what is the purpose of all this um, preliminary activity if it has been already uh, engraved into the network? What is the purpose of having, or, or what is the benefit the
0: uh,
3: of the introductory notes if it has been repeated a million times? So I can give already, you one right? piece of
1: information that people who have studied this uh, have found is that there are two different kinds of singing. We kind of brought this up uh, before, um, and and there's there's kind of directed song where a bird, uh, where a male is singing directed to a female, and. Uh, undirected song where a bird is singing by himself, and if you look at just the number of introductory notes in those two cases, they're wildly different. So when a bird is singing uh, to himself, he often makes more mistakes, and there are fewer introductory notes, far fewer, but when a bird is singing to a female, he has to get it right, and also I'm saying it's a correlation, I'm not saying there's necessarily causal, but he can have a huge string of introductory notes before he uncorks his directed song. So um, it's an intriguing correlation. I don't know. We can't delete these three introductory notes and ask, is the song now worse without that? Um, but again, I, I think it at least has the flavor of it's a finely tuned engine and things are all getting on the same page um, with these. So, So I don't... Like winding up. Like, like winding up, but, but I don't know. What, what are your feelings about that?
2: Well, so I, the, the thing that's interesting about this, so I, I always think of the song, and you can generalize this to motor, a lot of motor sequences, that there's three components that you have to learn. You have to learn the sequencing and the, the individual uh, uh, gestures. With, they also have their, uh, their own sequencing. Uh, and then you have to learn the timing because uh, they have to be coordinated. And the the interesting thing about HVC, at least in zebra finches and in in general, why it's different mapping onto the plan, because one of the things that's strange is you think this high-level thing that has plans, you think of them as chunks of a plan. It should be some tonic activity. You have this plan and you have that plan, so you have neurons representing plans. So HVC may be high-level of the plan, but it has very precise activity that's really precise in timing in their general planning your hierarchy you don't think you're going to specify the exact details of all the timing down at the precision of any level of precision that you want so that's what's a little bit different it's like it has this kind of high level structure but the timing is very specific sorry please maybe that's
0: a huge finding i mean maybe the scheme as i laid it out is wrong think the first thing you have to figure out is the clock. Is a clock.
1: And, and in fact, so what we did, um, I, I haven't told you this result, but I'd be happy to. We, we now have looked over 627 time points, and we asked the simple question, forget gestures. Let's look at the silent gaps, and let's look at syllables, and ask, do you see more bursting during the syllables, which you would have, I mean, there's a lot more going on there. You have a lot of very fast changes uh, that have to happen. In the, the silent gaps, there's very little going on, uh, maybe a mini breath or so, but even those are controversial. It's a downtime for the song. So the time model would suggest that this thing's blowing all the way through the entire thing, right? Whereas a gesture model would suggest that there's a lot of bursts. They're, they're, ju- they're all going to be around gestures, which happen during expiration during these syllables. And what we see is no difference at all in the rate of syllables. During gaps and during the song. So it really seems to be this very kind of divorced timer that is that is abstract and it's setting a kind of temporal time scale, a temporal backbone, if you like, to hang on articulation later in the pathway. And this is, we see the same kind of thing in human speech as well.
2: Yeah, so that's what's really interesting, right? So the, because the time, the, you can't. You know they're all really related. You can't have timing unless you have a, unless you have a uh, timing of something. In some ways in HBCU we have timing without something because it's so specific. But you need a sequence of something to have a sequence. So you can't have sequences without the lower level stuff. And uh, you have to organize the sequence to have the lower level things. And the timing can't be divorced of what the elements are. Because how are you going to define timing if you don't know what the elements are? So it's, they all become a little bit circular. Uh, and that's what's really the, the interesting thing, and one of the things that, um, that uh, you've shown with the human stuff and the difference between Broca's areas and the precentral stuff, which is really interesting, was this dichotomy between the deficits in speech. You can talk about it a little bit more when you cool different areas. And that was really striking because the, the zebra finches are weird. They're like little robots, they're, <laughs> they're, they're very stereotyped and very. Uh, um, so you can think of the whole song as being one gesture, and there's, then everything gets all wrapped up in a, in a kind of weird way. So you might think, well, timing and, and sequencing and planning, they get really sorted out because it's so simple, it's so rigid, that, that you know, if, if it's a little bit distributed to begin with, maybe as it gets so overlearned, the, the, the functions get really segregated. Um, but no speech. Right? So
0: we move all stuff around all the time. I'd like to sort out a little bit what you're talking about. So in the songbird, uh, there's this one structure, HVC, whose name is its initials, and, and in there the neurons fire in precise sequence relative to the song, the timing of the song, but not in a particular pattern that we can adjust to muscles or movements or even to the notes in the song. That's right. And so that there's something very mysterious about that translation step from that to muscle movements. Something wonderful, I'm sure. You could say something wonderful about that. I'm very sure. I'm good wonderful. with mysterious. <laughs> but uh, in, in humans you have a kind of a pa- slightly parallel. I mean, you can't do the same experiments in humans exactly, <laughs> right. but a uh, slightly parallel thing between. The pre-motor so, bro, area for speech, or what might be a pre-motor area for speech, and the actual motor area that controls speech movements, and so, say something about yeah.
1: So, talk. so what we did is um, in in two thousand eight, we had a, a paper uh, with Michael Fee at MIT, where I was a postdoc, and uh, what we did there is we put a small cooling device over HVC. Um, this region that we've been talking about here, um, the, the area where there are premotor sequences um, for song. And when we did that, that kind of premotor clock slowed down, if you like. And what happened is within the behavior, the bird now sings in slow motion. And so the, the song kind of stretches out and it does so fairly uniformly and we tried cooling other motor parts of the, the bird and we, we didn't see that so we we took that to mean that the, the circuitry within that area is is generating these pre-motor sequences and we thought okay well this is a, a a generic problem for neuroscience and for just generally understanding how the brain works there are a lot of processing centers these centers are all interacting with each other and it's really hard to see the contribution of each one of these centers to that kind of neural processing so we thought, hey, temperature's free and easy. It's 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 uh, everything in the brain is is kind of temperature dependent. So all we have to do is take a small cooler um, and put it on the bird's brain. We can put it in in other brains too. And we thought this could have an, a clinical application. And one kind of problem that's exists since the mid to late '30s, 1930s, is you know Wilder Penfield had a way of trying to find uh, eloquent cortex or, or language critical sites. Uh, by simply stimulating the surface of the brain with electrical current.
0: In people during.
1: In people during surgery. So the idea is, if I'm pulling out a tumor, I want to make sure I don't affect those areas because I could really lose function. So the way that he did that was he had somebody talk. It was an awake craniotomy, so the skull was partially removed and just put. Electrical current on the surface of the brain, and when he did that, it blocked uh, speech over certain areas. They call that uh, language critical sites, speech arrest sites, um, and then they put a little sticker there and they know, I don't want to cut here. I'll go in and get the tumor at a different place. Um, and the problem is, uh, estimates up to 40% of patients can actually have a seizure as a result of this awake mapping process because you're pumping electrical current into the brain. People are very careful to try and prevent this from happening, but it is the only game in town, really. And, and it's a game that works well. You can use this to really effectively find these areas, but it has some side effects. Um, so we decided, well, let's go in there. And we worked with a very talented team at the University of Iowa under Matthew Howard and Jeremy Greenlee. And um, I built a device that could now cool different parts of the brain in these awake patients, just transiently cool. And, and not cool a lot, but cool by about 10 degrees centigrade. The ventral part of cortex, um, and and just kind of put put this at different parts of the brain and ask what's changing about the fine structure of speech. And we know that there are two interconnected areas um, that have been uh, re- reasonably well studied. So there's Broca's area, a very famous one, uh, discovered in the 1800s by Paul Broca, um, and then there's the downstream target of that, which is speech motor cortex. These guys then contact motor neurons that run articulator muscles and we can now cool these two cortical regions and what we found was something that was very different across these two areas. When we cooled uh, the, the, the speech motor cortex, the ones that are projecting down to motor neurons, um, we see big changes in the quality of speech. So this is uh, Eddie Chang and other people have shown uh, that there's a kind of articulator map within this region. And when we cool this, it scrambles the signal enough and makes things enough out of sync that when I say the word Monday, it turns into Monday, like this. So it, it, it kind of uh, causes changes in the quality of produced speech. But we go one synapse up from that, and we start seeing what we see um, in the songbird. And so there we see changes in timing. So Monday becomes Monday and stretches out in time and it seemed that if we took all the patients and all of the areas that we cooled and kind of boil them down into a, a functional map there was a clear spatial segregation of, of Broca's being primarily uh, a timing site, one that's kind of consistent with what we're seeing in the songbird and one that seems to potentially uh, be, be separate from articulation but instead be setting potentially a kind of sequence or a clock for the behavior then this has an intermediary site, which is, is very important in this case for articulation, and that's the speech motor cortex, and this then drives the vocalization.
0: So, well, this makes it seem as though all the work in that bird song is maybe almost directly applicable in some way. But there's <laughs> there's also some kind of a clock that's running off, and brokers there. So, that brings us to the topic of how a HVC could do that, how it could make that sequence, which is the thing that I wanted to talk about a while ago, and I think, you know, it's the at the heart of the problem, is if you know for sure that HVC is where that sequence gets generated, then how
3: does so, it you know that And, and what's striking to me at least is that um, there seems to be a very high position in H V C in the recordings. Uh, and uh, yet Singing is something that happens over uh, seconds, and there's robustness. Uh, there's robustness to the uh, to to uh, uh, the time of the day and temperature. And if it is Australian summer, uh, it must be a big difference for the animals. I mean, they, they are homeotherms, so their temperature sure, sure, is sure. very tight. Uh-huh. We we too, yeah, yeah. but <laughs> but uh, we can get
1: really hot, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, That's why we talk slow in South Texas. <laughs> that <all. laughs> <laughs> should be fair. That should be yeah, yeah. <laughs> We all have pools. It's the beer. It's the beer. It's Shinerbot.
3: But anyway, so how can you, if something is that hierarchical, how? where are the, uh, if there's variability at the top, just in very simplistic terms, you, I will very amplified. Yeah. Yes, and the, if you th- think about these uh, top-down approaches, uh, and if not, you will have to have a series of um, feedback mechanisms to clamp down that variability. Mm-hmm. And the way I see the, the circuitry, right? It's I. It's, it seems to be a big clock. Right, things are just looping, and then every time it loops, it spits
1: out syllable in a way. So, so let me address a few things that you said. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we did our cooling study, we were concerned about the loopity loop idea, right? And so, so first of all, um, and I don't mean to dismiss uh, the, the concept of loops, loops are extremely important to the brain. They're, they're I mean, this is, you know, without, without loops, we, okay. Okay. Oh, would of oh yeah. <laughs> us uh, But but, um, but one idea is that you have a sequence within this area, HVC such that every single burst is kicked off by itself through this polysynaptic loop. So a burst will happen, it'll then go through RA, DM, brainstem, etc., up through UVA or something, and then back to the next one, such that every kind of fine moment by moment time scale is dictated by a fast traversal through this polysynaptic loop. And that will that will fit with uh, all the expansion and
3: contraction at uh, multi-scale that Todd uh, will do it, right, it's right.
1: it's orthogonal. So okay. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So 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 um, what we did in, in an experiment that I, I've told you about here, the cooling experiment, is we cooled down HVC, the song stretched out. Okay. Um, my my feeling would be you can then cool down any one of these way stations um, on this loop, and if the loop were really passing the signal along, you'd see an equal amount of cooling. Right. So we put a cooling probe within the next next possible loop member down, which is RA. It's in the other four brain region that that drives song. And we saw no kind of uh, we saw no kind of uh, how, how do I put it? So we saw no unexplainable change in, in song timing. So there was a minor expansion, but then we found out that we were actually cooling HVC a little bit. We corrected for that and then there was zero expansion in the song. So, so cooling RA does not cause changes to song timing. And you'd expect if things were a fast loop, then that link in the chain is mm. is important. So and it
0: could be a loop though inside just inside
1: HBC. Right. So so I think that it probably is. And and I think but that said, feedback does exist. There are pathways coming from the brainstem, and I think what this is probably doing is plugging in the next syllable. And and I think that the behavior is really chunked. I mean, it's kind of a Lashley style question, right? What, what, what's, what's a unit of behavior? And I think that um, I think the unit of behavior is a syllable. And I think that feedback is coming in to, to help uh, to help plug in your next syllable within HVc. And then I think what happens within the span of a syllable, which is between 100 and say 200 milliseconds is some um, very fail-safe circuitry, and, you know, so what makes a sequence happen? What kind of circuitry could do this? And and we have some ideas, and this would require not a podcast, but a whiteboard in several, uh, in a long time, but I think that the, um, I, I, I first want to say that sequences are found pervasively across all brains, and so if you look in, in, in basal ganglia, you look in motor cortex, you look in uh, parietal cortex, hippocampus. In behaving animals, you see large ensembles of cells that make these reliable sequences, right? So it seems to be a general kind of circuit strategy for completing certain things. Because cells themselves do one thing: it's it, they spike, right? And the spike is a millisecond, and a PSP is maybe ten milliseconds, and there could be longer uh, conductances as well. But um, for the most part, how do you get um, how do you get longer time scales? And I think you get that by getting sequences of of, uh, you know, neuronal ensembles like, like had spoke about. So, so how does this work? And I don't think there's necessarily a generic way. I think sequences are so generally important that you can get many roads lead to Rome. And you can probably get there through several different mechanisms. Certainly our mechanism and the Songbird may not be the same as a mechanism in the, in the hippocampus, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that's been proposed in the Songbird um, is an old concept of the sinfire chain. And there you have cells that are making these kind of feed forward, strong synaptic connections so that if cell 1 is active before cell 2, it's synapsing upon cell 2 and making that cell fire. And that thing goes on to the next cell and the next cell. And this has been a, a kind of cute uh, modeling idea uh, for a long time, but no one, like like I said before, it, um, like a, like a dragon, there's a concept of a dragon, but no one's actually seen a dragon. Here's a concept. i read a
3: couple of papers that have
1: claimed that they have. <laughs> <had. laughs> we all love koi <laughs> and we love King of but um, but but I think that uh, no, but but I, I think that we have done some some pretty significant ultrastructural work within HVC, and we see something that appears to be. Uh, a, a synaptic chain, and we see how many contacts are coming onto each cell, the strength of those contacts, and we think that that architecture is sufficient to support uh, a feedforward chain. Um, so
3: could it be that the, uh, um, the um, self-correction of all these variables, or the compensation for variables, it could be from intrinsic uh, acceptability properties of the cells, something that uh, just does not allow them to go So so
1: it's clear if you do an intracellular recording of one of these HVC neurons during singing that there's a great big depolarization right around the burst and um, I remember showing this to to Jeff McGee and he goes, calcium spike, I mean he didn't even breathe before he did that, he he said calcium spike and it looks uh, like it is and in fact we can, um, if we put in L-type calcium channel uh, pharmacological agents, uh, agonists or antagonists. The bird just stops singing, so we don't get much from that. But we have, in a previous paper, looked during uh, sleep when these birds also form these sleep sequences. Um, and if we put in uh, L-type agonists, then the sequences get very robust. The, the bursts get very large, and we can knock them almost completely out with nifedipine. Is the bird singing at sleep. Uh, he does sing in his sleep. So, Dan Margoliash had a beautiful paper, David Margoliash Science paper from 2000, and you see these uh, sequences going on during sleep. And unlike. Bird
0: is a powerful dreaming machine. It is. Do they
1: sing <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Do, do they sing better when they are asleep? They, um, they sing I think, much, much worse. Oh, uh, really? So, yeah. More uh, the patterns are terrible. Uh-huh. And the patterns are so terrible that uh, they, they made me want to stop recording in Sleeping Birds after three years and build this crazy microdrive that I don't think I would have had the energy or the insanity to build if it weren't so frustrating to study sleeping birds. But um, anyway.
0: So I'd like to bring up one more thing before we run out of time, and that is one of the things that you've seen that when the bird is, the young bird, is listening to its tutor, its father sing, then the neurons in the HVC respond in a way that's very similar to the way they're gonna respond they fire in a way similar to the way they're going to fire when the when that. S- similar,
1: kind of categorically, in that it is, um, it, it is a, a very reliable response in some cases and very time locked. Uh, we don't know, for example, so. But it could be. But it could be right. It could, it could be, be the
0: exact same.
1: Thing. It could be. That would be wonderful to see.
0: So in, in that case, those, those neurons would be learning their place in the song while they're listening to the tutor. Is that impossible? No, no that's it's probable. probable.
1: So... It's probable.
0: Yeah.
2: I mean, if you go to an anesthetized bird, the response to the bird's own song, uh, the tutor will drive the, the, the responses. And the bird's own song is actually, as it gets to the adult, is like the best thing. It's better than the tutor's song. The bird's own song is driving these areas in an anesthetized.
1: But, but here's the issue with the an- anesthesia, is that um, you get gorgeous responses in the adult. Right, right, and, and what we find, as the bird is maturing, he doesn't need to hear his dad anymore. And so one, one, one thing that, so urethane is the anesthesia where it's the kind of uh, magic, magic pill to get these kinds of responses. Other, isofluorine, others, you don't see it. Urethane is the world's, uh, don't take this wrong way, it's the world's dirtiest GABA blocker. And so that actually is, so what we find is that the inhibitory network is actually playing a really important computational role here. And that network is kind of stripped away when urethane happens. So the, the kind of nuanced cortical computation that we see is not that there is a Tudor song response. I think that's, that's exciting. But the fact that that Tudor song piece by piece is, is, is kind of um, suppressed as the animal starts to learn his song. Right, so as I start to learn that note, and I learn that note and that note, uh, you can see the inhibitory network gathering specifically at these at these moments in the song and forming a barrier. Because now that you've got this sequence, it's finely tuned. I have practiced a million times. I don't really want to hear some stray stray guy that sounds like my dad coming in and making this finely tuned machine fire willy nilly. Right, so so I think that. Um, that it's absolutely true. There is a rich literature going uh, back to I think Larry Katz was the first to show this in uh, 1981. So, so the idea that that you can have auditory sensitivity within this motor structure, and and in fact, so much so that they call it a sensory motor structure. But I think in the adult, it really is something else. I think it is um, it is a, a, a motor sequencer, and I think the sensory stuff, if anything, is kind of we still are trying to understand what that it's there for. Is it just vestigial? Or is it, you know, if you start to lose your game a little bit, is that sensory stuff going to come in and help set
0: you right? Yeah, but during learning, the sensory stuff is clearly... Could, the, absolutely. I know you guys uh, in the field might fight that Oh, about, no, we don't about, <laughs> uh, a little bit, But I was thinking about if the... If we don't really know the code of HVC. It, it, you described it as abstract. Yeah. Abstract is what we say when we don't know what it is. <laughs> I think so it's a sparse
1: representation of time. It's a sparse of
0: representation of time uh, and the, in relation to the song. Correct. Not to just it's a abstract point of, yeah. time, but in relation to That's the song. Right. And if, the, if that was learned by an auditory template that came in and, and created that pattern over and over and over again until those cells basically learned that pattern, that means the auditory template speaks the language of R A of HVC. It's uh, whatever that language is. There's an auditory structure that speaks the same language. There, there absolutely is. There's some beautiful the work.
1: The same. David function, David Schneider and uh, and and Sarah Woolley have shown that there is there are sparse responses as you go up to the auditory pathway. You get kind of more and more higher level responses. The ones that are immediately going to HVC, you see these very sparse responses. So you can play back a song and maybe this cell only likes this particular note of that song.
0: So we sometimes think there's a kind of sensory uh, coordinate space. That's right, that's right. And there's kind of a motor coordinate space. And that somewhere there has to be some kind of communication between the sensory and motor coordinate spaces. And maybe there's a there's a new coordinate space. There's a third coordinate space, and maybe. We'll and I think that
3: that coordinate well, it also thing. sounds like a grandmother cell, right? I mean, it could be the coordinate space. I mean, you can interpret it as as as.
0: Um, well, coordinate space becomes a grandmother cell or not, depending on whether it's vocalist or uh-huh. whether it's very distributed. Uh-huh. And but there has to be a yeah, coordinate yeah. space in either case. Uh-huh. But
2: this is the problem with zebra finches, in the sense that if the song is so stereotyped, then. You line up the the spikes to the song. Is this the motor representation of the song? Is this sensory representation of the song? They're all lined up with the song that the bird sings over and over again in exactly the same way.
0: So So they're not lined up with the motor motor movements. They're not specifically lined up with the auditory song. Well, we have,
1: uh, concerning concerning sensory, we we published uh, earlier this year deafened birds and wanted to measure HVC, these premotor cells, in deafened birds. Uh, And we see no change in the physiology.
2: Yeah, so, but the question is if you have, if they map so well onto each other, the question is the space. Uh, If you have a mapping that's a one-to-one mapping, then as a mathematician they're isomorphic. So which, the representation is the same, or they're mappable. So it's only the perturbations, like it's, then you have to really go about what's close and what's far. like. If you, in some ways, if you change a little muscle, it may make a big difference in sound. And so something that would be close to, you think, in the motor space would be big in the sensory space. And then they're different. So that's how you would have to compare them if the mapping is so tight that the translation is easy. So it's hard to find, you have to find variability on,
0: separable variability on either end that you can... I thought you already establish established that the mapping with motor wasn't, Clear that it basically doesn't represent muscles, and muscle contraction is the motor space. Yeah, so that is what and, it say, and it doesn't really map on the tonotopic map of the auditory system, and that's its sensory space. Yep. There's maybe a couple other sensory spaces, a location, and that kind of
1: stuff. Yeah, it, it kind of it takes all of the the meaning out of it and makes this very again abstract code, right? Something that's its a, its own language. Can, can I can I deviate the conversation for a second? Um, So
3: there's this evolution, I mean take birds because they are the product of evolution in which they repeat this song, um, um, For uh, it crystallizes and stays. Is there a reason to believe that um, the neuroanatomy and the plasticity of the anatomy of this system is different from other areas um, 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 like in us, in which there's a uh, strong plasticity, um, and if if so, if then the near, the neuroanatomy of the circuitry is kind of set, then the activity of the neurons they have to do all these kind of weird transformations to fit into that uh, activity, not as what happens in in sensory or motor or cortex in like uh, in, in primates. But I don't know how much is known because uh, I mean you you were you were you were suggesting that there's inhibition, and inhibitions that cut off between whatever feeds the, the tutor song onto the bird, and uh, in, in, uh, from outside, I will say, well, I don't need those accents anymore, and you uh, have been shown uh, repeatedly that they just disappear. Once you
1: don't stimulate them,
3: they just disappear in rats.
1: They're, right? they're there just as, I mean, so, mm-hmm. so the auditory inputs are, are there in the adult. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of uh, become neutered because of the inhibitory inputs. So the the anatomy does not change. It's more more static. I mean, we've looked very carefully at the anatomy. So I showed an an EM uh, micrograph where we've looked at the entire synaptome. So (laughs) all of the inhibitory and excitatory inputs coming onto that cell. Mm -hmm. Now we haven't classified those inputs as sensory. Versus motor, but we know from other experiments that there are probably 80 of those, say, 600 excitatory inputs, are actually coming from other RA projectors, suggesting that the other ones may be representing sensory information. That sensory information is not unplugged, it's there. If
2: you're a bird, it's interesting whether this is happening or needed to be happening in HVC. but if you're the bird, the song falls apart, at least when it's young. If it's really old, maybe they really don't need those yeah, yeah. anymore. But because then it doesn't fall apart. And that's true in humans too about deafening with speech.
1: So that's true.
0: Yeah.
2: So you need though, like they do something in the sense that if you remove sensory feedback, the song falls apart. Now whether that happens in H V C and whether uh, you know but some of the sensory stuff is important for keeping your song together. Uh, just maintain right, but, I
3: mean, yeah, but that's different than, than the anatomy, question. that's just like well, I know you know, know, that But, like, like, yeah, but you know, making
0: an extreme claim that every accent that you don't use just goes away, and obviously it's not true if your muscles are paralyzed, you don't lose your motor neurons. So it's true in some kind of limited way. Yeah, it isn't guaranteed. But they need something. it all. They, they need
2: to keep their song together, uh, right? They that's right. They are using it on a different scale, maybe not learning, but they need to to keep their song together. It's not right. so, like they don't need it anymore. Yeah.
0: Good. I, I, I don't want to lose my vision either. So uh, thank you very much. Oh, wow. on. And right. uh, this has been Neuroscientist Dakhshan. Thank you.